Step Into My Office is a podcast filled with real conversations and interviews about entrepreneurship, hosted by the founders of 135 Agency and built with black women in mind. If you like us, leave us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Now let's start the show. Hey, Sap. Hey, Shantae. How are you? I'm ready for this today's conversation. After 100 days of COVID, I'm ready to talk about where the finances meet the disastrous pandemic. Yeah, me too. So today's episode is about pandemic proof your business. And, you know, this is what we've been living for the past three months. So we thought it was a great idea to talk to an expert about what we can do to protect our business during this crazy time, how we're managing, you know, during all of these, you know, our industry's pretty much shut down. We do a lot in entertainment and um, that's been put on hold. So we wanted to talk to somebody about how can we manage our financial resources and survive and make it through this horrible <laughs> 2020 year. Okay, so our special guest today is uh, Carolyn Katz. She spent 16 years as managing director at Goldman Sachs and is a former banker and venture capitalist. Today, she's a board member for several public and private and nonprofit organizations. She's also a small business mentor at SCORE, S-C-O-R-E. You guys need to write that down. Specializing in all aspects of business and financing. Let's all wel welcome Carolyn Katz to step into my office. Thank you so much. Hi, Carolyn. So we are both intrigued by your resume and the fact that you spent 16 years at Goldman Sachs. How did you end up going from Wall Street to advising small businesses? Well, thanks for the question. I, um, while I was at Goldman and subs after Goldman, I left and worked as a venture capitalist. Um, I always really liked young, small companies. After VC, I left and I worked a lot as a consultant to startups. And then I actually started my own company. And when I was doing that, what I discovered was that all of my partners were themselves small business people. And what I discovered was that they, they were geniuses at like a third of the business. And there was another third of the business that they had kind of figured out. And then there was a third of doing business that they didn't even know they didn't know. And I found that really intriguing. And so I looked around for places where I could help out. And I found SCORE, which has been really a wonderful place to mentor and volunteer. When you are investing in businesses, how small do the businesses get that you have invested in? I know sometimes when a VC says a small business, we wouldn't view those businesses as small. We would look at them as like mid-level, but a VC would be like, oh, this is a small business, you know, $50 million and under. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a really good point. And it's one that we're seeing playing out right now. As an investor, typically you you need to see a little bit of something. I don't do that much investing on my own anymore. So when I talk about small businesses, now I'm talking about legitimately small businesses, like um, 10 people or one person just starting mm -hmm. out. Um, I, I, really like, I really like the idea, the process of thinking through a business and getting it, it started. Oh, good. Great. Okay. So yeah, those are true startups and small businesses, some I'm sure have a million or less in, in annual revenue. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the most common barriers for small businesses to access investments or be exposed to venture capitalists or establishing a capital campaign, et cetera? What are the most common things that you've seen that prevent a lot of small businesses from gaining resources? 
Well, that's actually kind of two different, like getting a loan and getting investment are often two different things. So we'll start with loans because those are generally easier. Um, the a problem with getting a loan for a very small young business is you will need some money of your own. You, you, you know, they will not lend to you unless you've put some equity in. So you'll need to find friends and family, you know, some kind of, of money going so that you have something to borrow against. Um, but the first thing is you, you, you can't rely entirely on other people's money. Like you're going to have to come up with some amount of money on your own. Um, having done that, I think that there are two, two problems that stand in the way of people getting access to loans. One is being able to tell a story and put the numbers together in a way that a bank wants to see. They have a very specific um, lens through which they look at small businesses. It's quite different from the way um, an entrepreneur looks at a business or the way you would talk about your business if you were pitching it to a friend, if you wanted a friend or somebody to invest in your business, because a bank just wants safety. The, you know, the best thing that happens to a bank at the end of the day is they get their money back. They're, you know, they're not looking for something very exciting. So being able to explain your business in a way that's appealing and makes sense to a bank is a little bit of a a skill that you need to learn. You need to pull some numbers together to be able to do it. And then the second thing is knowing who to ask. All too often, you know, you walk into any bank branch and there's always a picture on the wall of the smiling banker and the pet shop owner or the, you know, person baking cupcakes or something. And it's always about how they love small businesses. But typically, if you approach any of the big name banks, your chances of getting a loan as a small business is really, really, really small. Usually what we do at SCORE is we help the bank find um, what's called a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, um, which are set up specifically to make SBA loans to small businesses, and they're usually much better at understanding very young, very small businesses. It's still tricky to get a loan, but if you put together, if you have a good story, you know how to tell it, and you know who to ask, your chances improve. On the investment side, one percent of all companies ever get kind of outside investment. So there's kind of this mythology in the kind of public press or like in public perception right now that, um, you know, what you need to do is you do a friends and everybody knows the terminology. You do a friends and family round and then you do a pre-seed round and then you do a seed round. And um, most businesses honestly are not even appropriate for that kind of an investment um, for many reasons. Um, it's not the right thing for the investor. It's not the right thing for the company. There are other ways to get investment, though. Um, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking with people about crowdfunding, um, which is not necessarily investment. But, you know, there's a lot of ways to get that startup capital that's not an outside investor. Um, then if you do, if you do have the right kind of business and you've you sort of have what's called proof of concept. You've shown that people actually want to buy the product, and you have the kind of story that's a kind of really high-growth story um, that would appeal to a professional investor. Usually what we end up doing is thinking, brainstorming other ways to get startup capital because even if you are able to go for that investor capital, 
um, you're going to usually need you're going to need to prove out your concept a little bit. You're going to need some other capital before you can go there. Um, but that is very tricky. You know, these days, um, because of the coronavirus crisis and this pandemic that we're in, the PPP uh, government loan setup was the first thing that kind of shined a light on the fact that there are a lot of businesses that are that are in existence who refer to themselves as small. And they have been considered small in some circles. But when everything, when the economy came to a screeching halt um, and they were able to benefit off of the same programs, that's when people kind of, you know, woke up and was like, is this happening um, all the time? Where these companies that claim that they're small, they, they can take advantage of government programs and things that are set aside for small business, even though they're thriving, they're definitely not small. They're just smaller than let's say Apple, Google, and Disney. <laughs> right. When you talk about a truly small business, what can these black women founders do to take better advantage of um, the government uh, programs that have been set up? Like, I feel like there are a lot of programs out there that they may not even know about. Um, it just so happens that I got an e-blast from the NYC um, Small Business Services because, you know, I, we're, we're, we're certified and we went to the meetings and all of that to get certified, even though it doesn't have an impact on our bottom line like that. But I got an email after PPP ran out the first time that said, we also have a loan program, but no part of it is forgivable. A lot of people don't even know that that even exists. Is there a resource but it can go and find out about all the different programs that exist federally and city and state local that can help them to find financing, to help them to get through this period. The only thing I know of that's COVID specific, somebody mentioned it to me, is I think it's called COVID CAP. I'd have to look it up. COVIDCAP.com is what I remember it as being. Um, other than that, unfortunately, you are reliant on kind of a hodgepodge of uh, different websites. We, we maintain a website at scorenyc.org where we keep everything that we hear about. Um, a lot of government officials right now have done, you know, a good job. Um, you know, the state senators and um, Congress people uh, generally in the state have decent websites. I don't know of anybody that has a comprehensive website because I think we're all doing it the same way, which is if we happen to hear about something, we post it. Um, and that's more like COVID specific um, and emergency funding. I talk to people every day about this stuff and I know how incredibly frustrating it is. Besides the government programs, um, the best programs typically, they're, they're there are sort of two categories of things that have been um, out there. One are generally geographically based. They're either state or they're like within New York, we have a lot of them that target particular neighborhoods or particular groups of people. And they will give typically, you know, beyond the government, most of the grants um, and loans are quite small. They tend to sort of cap out at $10,000. Now, for many small businesses, $10,000 is still a wonderful amount of money. Um, but, you know, if you've got rent, if you've got other expenses, it doesn't, we all know, last you all that long. Um, so their two sources are usually just to be, you should, everybody should be super, super tied in to 
any kind of affinity groups that you can belong to, whether it's your local business community, um, you know, black business owners, Hispanic business owners, women business owners, um, people in your industry. Uh, this is a time to be as connected as you possibly can because a lot of these things are targeted through word of mouth or through mailing lists or something like that. That's honestly where I learn most of this stuff is I'm on a lot of different mailing lists just to know what's going on. And a lot of times the way we add it to our website is because I got it off some mailing list. A lot of organizations that have been giving out grants, um, Sam's Club had one, Verizon had one, Hennessy, I know, just announced one that was specifically for Black-owned business or minority-owned businesses. Um, Shea Moisture has one specifically, I believe, for black-owned businesses. Um, so there are some um, often sponsored by large companies. The problem with grants is the easier, the more likely you are to qualify, the more other people are likely to qualify, and so they become very, very right. competitive. In our community, it seems like those businesses that sell hair products and makeup they're easier to um, find investment capital um, or like Lisa Price with Carol's daughter. She was purchased by L'Oreal. Uh, Shea Moisture was purchased by Unilever. You hear about those big deals that are going on when they're selling a, a, a super niche product that is going to have a built-in you know, consumer base. When you're talking about Black women who are out there with service-based businesses, agencies, things like that, service providers, when these women are looking to scale their business, what is the best strategy that they can follow? Because that's really what 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 you hear about mostly is, is the biggest challenge. Like I've been in business five, 10 years and have kind of hit a ceiling because it costs more to grow the business, but you know I can't get the injection of capital that I need because I don't know anybody. Or, you know, a VC said they're more interested in a product-based business or, you know, those kinds of things. I've met with personally myself with several VCs that were like, ah, it's easier for us to do this with a product-based business. I mean, you know, it's, I respect the business, but it's just, it's, I can't wrap my head around it. So what, what kind of advice do you have for women who are out there doing that kind of uh, they're on that kind of journey. Yeah, unfortunately, um, service-based businesses in general are very hard to get any kind of investment into, even loans. Um, a well-established, like a couple-year-old service business with kind of repeat client base so and the dependable revenue stream may be able to access some amount of loan capital, but the way a, a bank or an investor looks at it, they don't have physical assets. You know, I was in banking, we used to say, like, walked out the door every day. You don't have a store or a restaurant or something that you can invest in. And so it's particularly hard for black-owned businesses. Um, but unfortunately, and I don't know if this makes anybody feel better, it is a universal problem for service businesses. It, and when I said there, there are businesses that don't, will probably never be appropriate for professional investors, in many cases, service businesses fall into that category just because they can't grow exponentially. There's one major way and one more niche way for businesses like that to grow. The more major way is usually pricing. That um, when I talk to people who are in service-based businesses, um, often it's a question of trying to retool your pricing if possible to get more money up front so that you can afford then to bring on the staff you need to staff that project to free up your time to um, go out and pitch more projects so that you can grow faster. Another reason that 
that banks and others don't lend to service businesses is they usually see them as businesses that should be self-financing because your, your revenue from the service ought to cover your costs. And so that's another uh, stumbling block to trying to get outside capital. So often, unfortunately, the, the best way is to look at how you price and try to figure out if you can get more money, more of your payment upfront in some form or get some kind of a subscription or some kind of an ongoing revenue stream that you can count on so that you know then often the way service-based businesses grow is you as the owner can then hire somebody with that dependable revenue stream to do some of your work that frees up your time to grow the business. But unfortunately, that's the, the most standard way to grow a service-based business um, until, as I said, if, you're get, if you've done that for a couple years and you have some track record, uh, you, may, you may qualify for loans um, that can help you with marketing costs or adding some staff. Um, the other way that's a more niche way for service-based businesses to grow, you mentioned that your business is certified. If you do have a certified uh, minority and woman, women-owned business um, and you get a governmental contract as a result of that, um, one thing that lenders do know is that a lot of those contracts will require uh, upfront investment. You may need to bring on people. You may need to um, – outsource different parts of the of the project there may be costs uh, they also know that governments aren't the fastest payers um, so there are loans um, specifically for MWBEs against um, governmental contracts that still doesn't answer the problem of having enough capital to kind of get out there and get those contracts to begin with and not every service business is in a category that would qualify for a, um, a contract like that, but that isn't another alternative. So Carolyn, if that's the reality of how VCs and banks look at service-based businesses, it doesn't really speak to some of the socioeconomic barriers that Black-owned businesses face. So for example, in the PR world, a lot of the smaller successful business owners have the benefit of trust funds or they come from wealthy families to start their businesses. What does that say for service-based businesses that are less likely to have resources that will allow them to one day become attractive to an investor? If, if it's possible and it's not possible for everyone to start out kind of getting hired just as a consultant first, that will build your credentials. You know, if you can do it on your own, you can often make a decent amount of money because you know, you, you can price sort of where your firm was pricing your time and you keep all of the profits. You know, it's a way to build up a little bit of capital on your own and honestly learn some of the aspects of the business that you might not have known when you were a consultant or a, um, you know, an advisor working for a larger organization. That will help you once you want to try to scale that business up. Uh, so that's one way to do it. Um, you know, trying in some way to, to kind of ladder your way there to, you know, take steps, unfortunately, instead of just like opening your whole, whole business on your own, which is expensive. Service businesses that end up getting outside investment are a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage, even really large service businesses. I mean, usually when you hear of those businesses getting investment. And this is another thing actually for even for startups. It comes in the more in the form of partnerships. So if you think of like ad agencies or 
staffing or accountants. Generally, those, those kind of businesses do not get kind of standalone investment. The way in which they are attractive is they have a customer base that's attractive to somebody else. So there's two ways of partnership. One is I'm an accountant. I run you know, an accounting firm and a larger accounting firm wants to acquire me or you know, give me capital because they can roll up my, my customers. They can put my customers on some of their accounting software. Um, all of a sudden, it will be a much more profitable business for all of us combined and we all benefit. Or there are kind of um, partnerships where there are synergies in parallel businesses. And so that may be um, I own a I'm, – I'm starting a, um, a PR firm um, and a digital marketing agency, an established digital marketing agency wants to partner with me. You know, somebody who, who can sell a different service to my same customer base. That's another way that two companies together can be stronger than each of them on their own. And that is another way where startup service businesses can consider if they can find the right partner. You know, so if you are serving a particular clientele, either um, – you know, a particular ethnic group or a particular geography, um, you may that may be attractive to a larger organization. You may able be able to bring them a clientele they couldn't get on their own, and you may have advantages in that you you now have this backing of this larger organization. So that's another way that startups can think about if they have any of those relationships of getting. Um, it may not be capital, but it may be resources and brand name and leads and support. You know, there may there there are other things that you can get sometimes that aren't just straight money. So this has all been really great, helpful information. I think um, we have one last question for you. How can be people who are out there who are too busy surviving, or too busy building their business, too busy managing their their staff? How can they take some time, carve some time out to really work on building a relationship with their local bank or, you know, the best kind of bank that, that, that they would need in the future? This is a really good question. And it's another one that I have to say, I've, I've found myself growing angry on certain webcasts or, you know, um, presentations that I've heard, especially since COVID started, that said, this is an example of why all small businesses need to build a relationship with their bank. Um, because there were so, you know, we, you mentioned PPP, and then we never really came back to that topic. But there were so many small businesses that had done just that, that had had established a relationship early on that had always banked with a certain bank, um, you know, that had never missed a payment that did everything they were supposed to do. And then PPP opened and they couldn't even get an application because they didn't have, they didn't do their payroll there or they didn't, you know, you, you had one kind of account and they were only giving it to somebody who had a different kind of account. So I just want people to be clear eyed that unfortunately one one real thing that this crisis illuminated clearly was that not all banking relationships are the same and it's good to have one but unfortunately it's not it won't always help so sorry to be such a downer but unfortunately that's been the truth again this is part of this is the nature of banking you know the idea of that you had a neighborhood bank and the banker knew you 
um, in many in many places that just doesn't exist. But I do think that one thing is important for small businesses is I never want to make a blanket statement, but in many cases, I think avoiding the largest bank in town or certainly the largest national banking chain in town is a good idea. What we've seen through thick and thin for as long as I've been helping small businesses with lending, but certainly in the COVID crisis, is that um, the community banks, the um, credit unions often are, are there, really much more there for the small businesses when they need them. I would definitely shop around for banks, not only for rates, but for one where when you walk in there, there is somebody to talk to. And that is the key. Whatever bank you choose, there should be a banker whose email address you have. You know, as I said, I said at the beginning, I started my own business. I didn't have a banker. You know, when I needed something, I had to go wander around the branch and talk to people who were there to, like, I don't know, open personal credit cards or, you know, get me a lost ATM card or something, but didn't know anything about business banking. So just find a bank in your community where there's somebody, you know, you're really lucky to have somebody who has talked to you about your business and has seen your business. That's what you want. Get it. Even if there's not a physical person, get an email address of a human being who you can check in with periodically and who you can at least contact um, when you need them. You know, organic relationship building is another thing like word of mouth. It sounds old school, but there really is no replacement for it. it you know, just making sure that you work on that relationship is very key, especially the smaller your business is, the more important that relationship is going to be. Um, so uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate your expertise. And if there's anything else that you want to share with our listeners. Definitely. There are score chapters. There are over 300 across the country. They're in every state and area of the country. There are over 10,000 SCORE volunteers. We all have our own areas of expertise, so it's not just finance. If you need help with marketing or accounting or personnel or, you know, all sorts of different specialties, there are people who specialize by industry. There are probably people who built their own business or were successful in the industry that you're trying to grow in. Uh, if you go to the National SCORE um, website, the first thing that you will see is request a mentor and you put in your zip code and it will give you a list of the chapters around you. For a long time, SCORE mentors have been doing video mentoring, especially with COVID. Everybody's doing video mentoring and most SCORE chapters have a, lot, a range of workshops that they run to. You know, once we can go back to doing physical workshops again, um, are a great place to meet other business owners in your community. Um, so definitely everybody should reach out to SCORE. We're here to help you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Carolyn, for joining us. You know what? I, you know, Shante, I, I really have to be honest. That was a little disappointing, the information that she shared. I mean, she, you know, it's not really her fault. She is um, in the industry. And, uh, you know, some of her responses especially about you know investments and things like that or looking for funding for small businesses especially service-based businesses like ours is familiar i mean we faced some of those barriers when you know when you go to a bank and you're looking for uh support um you know not necessarily even during this pandemic but just to fund some real costs and you know, the the reality, I think she said um, 1% of, 
you know, uh, loans or funding goes to service-based businesses. I'm just a little concerned about people, you know, our listeners who um, are most likely mostly communications professionals who have their own uh, businesses. And what does that kind of say for, for our industry if our type of business is not traditionally attractive to VCs, investors, and banks? So I, I mean, I also found the feedback, obviously, you know, disappointing. It wasn't what I was trying to hear, um, but it wasn't different from any industry standard financial advice I've heard from every bank on every corner. So, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure that she was being accurate in her, in her advice, because that's what a local bank would tell you. Um, however, you know, now that we have seen um, other service-based businesses like Uber, Lyft, WeWork, and some of these other companies that are out there, a slew of them in Silicon Valley who have come to the table with a service-based idea and have raised Boku bucks, I no longer think with those same limitations. I, I mean, I'm no bank, banking insider, but I mean, I think it's pretty clear that your access to capital all depends on your relationships. The good thing, I think, is that there's so many VC companies out there who are looking for owners of color that the, that there's a lot more opportunity than there ever used to be, especially in this moment that we're in right now with all of this accountability and wokeness. A lot of people are realizing that there's something wrong when you can be a white dude who can raise limitless dollars, not have to show that your company is profitable, keep going back for another round of funding. But when you're a black woman, you go to the local bank and for $75,000, they want your offspring, your ovaries and your home. That's a problem. <laughs> take take I mean, for, for everybody out there who also found that advice disheartening, I would just say, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but know that there are more options out there today than there ever was. And uh, banking is mostly a relationship-based effort. It just is. Get to know some banking people, even if you're uncomfortable. Yeah, with I that. mean, especially with crowdfunding out here. Also, you know, I think of businesses um, like Slutty Vegan, uh, not necessarily a service-based business, but I know she, uh, Slutty Vegan, you know, the popular burger, vegan burger um, restaurant, her first business was also in the restaurant field and it she lost it in a fire and made a lot of uh, corrections after that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm Now she definitely has investors, but I think she leveraged her network of influencers, of fellow college classmates. I think she went to Clark Atlanta and it just took like a whole village of people who were sold on the product and the 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 brand the idea that you know helped you know her get to the next step and so i think that is kind of how especially the spirit of black women how we make a way out of no way um we figure it out we've always been survivors it you know it kind of just uh emphasizes the point to really continue to be the best in your at, at what you do have the best product have the best service um, you know, let use your network, whether it's your, your sorority, your church, your, your neighborhood or whatever, and build from there because, you know, Carolyn represented traditional, you know, financial wall street sort of mentality, but we can, you know, we've raised 
money and funds and businesses through, you know, our regular local means. I mean, if churches can, you know, be in some of the most struggling neighborhoods, but still manage to get the roof fixed and to have these big fish fries every other uh, weekend within a com serving a community that has limited funds. I mean, we know how to make a dollar out of 15 cents. So Shantae, we have been in business for 15 years and have seen a lot of ups and downs. Um, I know recently you have been dealing with the banks um, on trying to get a PPP loan and that has been a saga. Can you, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what that was like? You know, I know that a lot of people out there listening have definitely tried it on their own. First of all, anytime the government comes up with any kind of program, I'm skeptical, right? And, and I'm, and I'm no less skeptical after this process, but the one thing is, you know, for even the small percentage of businesses that were able to get funds, you have to be in it to win it. Right. So I would never say just ignore it. Don't try it. Now, for us, um, you know, when we were when we first tried it, they said that they had run out of money, which ended up being a lie because they had one hundred million dollars. And, you know, initially when it was when the um, when the program was announced and then you've got companies like Ruth's Chris and Union Square Hospitality Group, which is the company that owns Shake Shack. And you've got uh, hotels and cruise lines trying to get money. Of course, that's a colossal eye roll because you're like, I knew it. It really wasn't for small businesses. The problem in this country is that- Did they give that money back? Some, uh, Union Square Hospitality gave the money back. Harvard, they gave the money back. I believe the uh, the, the Trump administration- Ruth's Chris, did they? Um, they shook- I know that Trump shook down Harvard and they, they gave their money back. I don't know about Ruth's Chris. Um, but, um, you know, these the fact that- and these businesses, I, I mean, I want to say they did something wrong, but they really didn't because they know that in this country, the way that the rules are so twisted and skewed, it, they technically qualify as a small business. Don't you know, that's they we've got to redefine what it means to be a small business in this country, because if you have millions of dollars on the books and over 500 employees, you should not be able to qualify as a small business, period. A small business should be between one and 50 employees and that's it. But there's really, you know, because for so long, this government has completely ignored those kinds of businesses, the super small mom and pop local stores, local store shops and service-based businesses that these kinds of, of gaping holes exist. Regardless, there are some businesses that I saw on New York One News, and I do mean a few that were able to get the PPP loan for us it was just like a never ending cycle of phone calls and applications. And then reading some of the feedback from businesses who got it that were saying, I had to have an entire team of accountants and attorneys on top of this paperwork in order to even get this. Your average small business doesn't have a team to fill out an application that costs money. Um, so, you know, we, it never ended up working out for us, but you know, the way that divine intervention works, the George Floyd case came up and changed the world. And then all of a sudden there was a huge need for the serv the services that we provide, especially given the fact that most clients know that even before this George Floyd outrage moment that we're in, Saptosa and I have been pushing for changing the status quo, for confronting institutional racism in, uh, in our industries. And we've been pushing our clients to treat black vendors better forever. 
So that's the reason why it generated more business for us because they were like, hey, where have I heard this before? Oh, yeah, that's right, them. So they came to us and in 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 such a volume that we didn't need the PPP loan anymore. So that's, you know, divine intervention working on our behalf and also the fact that, you know, these are things that it, I, no one has to convince me to fight for social justice issues or to fight for you know, some kind of equalization or fairness in the world of entrepreneurship and business is something I would do if nobody was paying me anything. Yeah. And, and, you know, even so probably in April, let's say towards the end of March, um, as our clients, you know, especially the ones in film and TV, you know, saying, Hey, you know, we, we're, we, we don't know what's going on or one client, you know, we were under contract and the contract fulfilled itself, but we, we weren't renewed just to kind of wait and see, you know, we started auditing, you know, taking inventory of our expenses and seeing what can we get rid of? What can we put on pause? Negotiating or payment arrangements with um, vendors or, you know, people, subscriptions, cutting off subscriptions for different services. I mean, you got to figure out where you can pinch and cut you know, as needed because, you know, times are, times are hard. So, um, we, you know, thankfully we didn't really have to have a major overhaul of our team. Um, you know, we had to let, you know, if a, if a project ended that, um, or a project, a client put us on hiatus or just canceled the, the contract outright, we had to let the person managing it go. But, we already operate with low overhead. We've always been, we've for a while been sort of like a satellite team and have been using Zoom before Zoom was a thing. <laughs> and um, so thankfully we have been um, able to be okay. We always feel we're, you know, we're very blessed and that th those new projects, those clients, um, National Geographic, Google, they came in right on time. So. I would say, I mean, this is kind of like the the lesson that we learned is operating with a low overhead. We used to do office space. We used to do, you know, you know, the kind of have the traditional look, I think, because there is pressure and judgment for black owned businesses. We're always operating under this stereotype that we are inferior, that our services aren't on par and that we don't have quote unquote capacity. When people say, do you have the capacity? I feel like that's coded racism. It's definitely because I'm coded. coming to definitely. you. I'm, I'm coming to you 10 years in, five years in, 15 years in. And the fact that you're questioning, uh, you know, do I have capacity when you see, you know, all these wonderful case studies and clientele after years of that i started having a, a a sensitivity to it so you know the whole look and feel to make it quote unquote look like a real business is expensive and it's also you're chasing after uh you know uh, or you're reacting to a, a racist idea it we 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 learned about we learned from that and just based our um, organization on the services, the quality of the service. It allowed us to expand and engage publicists in other cities. 
Um, you know, we have been working from home and we'll have maybe a, a membership to some of these co-working spaces like the gathering spot, like the wing, like blueprint, like spring place. And it's been effective for us. However, not saying there's no value to a brick and mortar shop at all. I'm saying, again, you heard about, you know, Carolyn and, you know, how difficult it is for service-based businesses to get loans. So that can't stop you. You know, it's like the chicken or the egg. I need to generate business. I need to hire people to help me generate business and go after more business. I can't always do that with the type of retainer fees and, that's and, where and the expenses. expenses. So, you know, that's the, that's, that's kind of the disappointing thing about the, the you know, her advice, because the, the, that doesn't account for the, the hard costs of running a business. The number one and two expenses any service-based business has is number one people, right? That is going to be what drains your blood dry every month. And that's, if you don't have a rent, that would be number two the next thing that drains your blood dry. And if you are any kind of person who cares about the quality of service that you're providing, eventually your business is going to grow to the point where you can't do service every client. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that you can't be working on every project because some clients are like, oh, if I can't have you, I don't want it. Nah, that's not how business works. Um, you, you, as a business grows, you hire people and they can provide the same service. However, if you want a service-based professional that's going to provide the service the way you would, they are not going to come cheap. They're also going to know that they have options to go to your competitor, to go to the large mainstream company and, and make a lot more. So in order for you to hold on to them, you have to pay them a significant portion of what you make. And unfortunately, if in a service-based business, you could spend every single cent that you make on hiring good talent. Yeah. And these are people who think that just doing their everyday job and, and getting way overpaid for it, mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, is fine. And they don't have to lift a finger to bring in more business. Well, how do you expect this business? Because this is not a big mainstream Fortune 500 business. This is a mom and pop shop. How do you expect us to be able to bring in more business if we're spending every single cent on you? Absolutely. So that means usually you have to choose between a new business person or a person who's going to service clients. That is, I mean, we are all the way there with uh, all of you guys who are in service-based businesses because that's the plight. It's like insurmountable. And then when you go to um, someplace to get funding, the first thing they tell you is, oh, well, we don't really do service-based businesses. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like you you, you just kind of, uh, unless if some kind of way, there's got to be something different about us and the people who manage to always get a ton of financing from Silicon Valley. I wonder what the difference is. Hello. Hmm, let me think about <laughs> exactly. it. <laughs> I exactly. I just don't know what's different. Yeah. So, you know, there is money out there. It's just yeah. that you have to figure out how to build the right relationships to go get access to it. Yeah, I, I would say don't go bankrupt trying to look the part, you know, in, in a business. Um, zero in on the quality of the service, you know, learn, study, be a, a student of this industry and, 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 and find a niche. You know, if it's in a certain area of PR, if it's faith-based PR, if it's um, health or if it's sports, you know, you have, we, we, you know, when resources are low, we, we get creative. 
um, and and we figure out ways. And you know, we Shantae, I mean, even though we definitely haven't had a whole lot of success with um, loans and things like that, we've had we have been able to get a line of credit. Um, and a few times, yeah, a few times that's been helpful, but there's like, you know, a caveat to a line of credit, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? It's not free money and no, nothing, nothing is ever, free, ever is, but it turns into a bill really quick. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you don't pay it back. So it's still something that I think that, uh, after a certain amount of years in business, you do become more eligible, but here's what I like about the line of credit thing more than like angel angel investors or VCs. The bank wants you to pay them their money back, but they don't want any ownership in your business. Mm -hmm. So if you're yeah. able to get a significant line of credit, I would say always start there first. Um, because not only will having the line of credit and paying it back, using hardly any of it and paying it back will help you build up a great credit profile, number one. And number two, it'll train you that you never borrow what you need. You always borrow a lot more than that and only use a, a small portion. If you don't master that, your borrowing will always be a nightmare for you. Um, and, and number three, you don't have somebody who doesn't understand your business, but just really is looking for something to make them wealthy quickly without with very minimal effort from them owning a piece of your business and, and putting the pressure on you about when you're going to become profitable and when they're going to get their money back and when all of these benchmarks are going to be reached, but they're not lifting a finger to help you do it. So I would say start with the line of credit and then work your way out. I say definitely go towards the VC community. Like I said, there's, there's now more than ever, that community is growing in appetite for people of color. I would say just go after it, but learn how to borrow money successfully to your advantage through a line of credit. That's good advice. And find, I guess, find a banker and make a relationship with them. Not when you ask for money, but just, hey, send them a bottle of wine for Christmas. Step in, you know, stop by, say hello, let them know how your, you know, your business is doing. Show them the success and, and, and pave the way for a personal or personable relationship with them so that when you are asking uh, or applying for a loan that, you know, they're invested in your success and, and, and making sure that you get, get those funds. All right. Well, that so. sounds, I see we turned that around. We, this, this is a positive, uh, 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 conversation. <laughs> I feel good now. <laughs> I, I, I always feel good some kind of way, no matter how many no's we get, we still live to, to thrive another day. And that's the bottom line. So no, that's right. I mean, you know, I'm sure everybody else out there is exactly the same. This entrepreneurial journey, it ain't for the week. Exactly. That's what I will say. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back for our Black Girl Boss moment. Hey, you love stepping to my office. Subscribe now and leave us a review. Got a business question for Shantae or Saptosa? Use hashtag step into my office. That's hashtag step into my office. And if you have video or podcast production needs, visit verse2media.com. That's verse2media.com. Now back to step into my office. Okay. I could not be more excited um, than I am right now about today's Black Girl Boss, the legendary Shirley Chisholm, um, who I'm sure you guys have all heard of. Um, in 1969, she became the first Black woman elected to Congress um, and founding member of the CBC and the Congressional Women's Caucus, which both exist today. And the CBC is an immensely powerful organization in Congress. 
also ran for the Democratic nomination for president. Her outspoken nature earned her the nickname Fighting Shirley Chisholm. She once said, I have no intention of just sitting quietly and observing. I'm here to fix the nation's problems. And she's also led the, led the way for the black girl magic known today as Congresswoman Val Demings, who was on the impeachment committee. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who's part of the squad. Congresswoman Karen Bass, who is the president of the CBC. Um, and, you know, all of those women, uh, you know, Shirley Chisholm paved the way for them and we're grateful. And also you can look forward to a, a, a biopic coming uh, coming soon about Shirley Chisholm that's being created by Viola Davis and her husband, Julian. So Shirley Chisholm, we salute you for being a black girl boss. I can't wait for that Shirley Chisholm uh, film. That's yes, be I'm so excited. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Step Into My Office. Remember to use hashtag Step Into My Office to send us feedback or any questions when you're hitting us up on social media at ONE35Agency or 135StreetAgency on Twitter. Shout out to Verse2 for producing this podcast. Visit them at verse2media.com if you need a podcast or video producer. We're making it through this pandemic. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Shantae. We'll see you next time. We'll see you soon.